Thank you, Marie, and thank you all for joining us at River Oaks today. Those of you at home worshiping online and those of you with us here, we really appreciate so much your being here. want to especially thank this morning those on our team who are responsible uh, for our video, for our audio, for the PowerPoint slides you see on the screen. Um, Doing the service live stream has required uh, far more volunteers than we needed before the coronavirus. In the past, to do the, the sound and uh, PowerPoints, we might have two to four people back in the sound booth. Today, it's more like seven or eight. And uh, it's much more complicated to, to live stream a service than I ever realized. But I am so appreciative uh, for these volunteers back here and the work they do faithfully every week. I was reminded, yes, let's do thank them right now. I was reminded of how important they are when I read an article this week in World Magazine. Uh, due to the coronavirus and the reduced number of people allowed at uh, soccer games, there was a particular Scot uh, a game in Scotland where it was decided to use artificial intelligence, an artificial intelligence system, uh, in place of a human camera operator. And so the AI system was, of course, supposed to follow the soccer ball throughout the game, but the artificial intelligence system got confused, and it fixed on the very bald head of a linesman <laughs> so that throughout the match... The camera did not follow the soccer ball, but followed this guy's head on the sidelines. Well, as this continued throughout the game, fans flocked to social media to roast the broadcast and those who had made the decision. But I want to let you know this morning, we have real people running our cameras, running our live stream, our sound, our lighting, and we are so appreciative, appreciative for you all back there. Thank you so very, very much. Well, we continue today with our series we've called One Story. We're looking at the entirety of the Bible from beginning to end, the unity of the Scripture, and the unified theme of God's plan of redemption for His people. We're almost to the end of the Bible now. We come today to the short New Testament book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, the letter titled 1 John. It was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was one of those three uh, apostles who were particularly close to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were often with Jesus when other disciples were not. John is also believed to have been the apostle who lived the longest, he, who lived to a ripe old age. John is credited with having written not only the very important gospel of John, but the book of Revelation. In addition, we have three letters in the New Testament written by him. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. 2 and 3 John are real short, just one chapter, but 1 John has five chapters. That's a book we're going to look at today. And the book of 1 John has several key themes. One of the themes is the importance of our fellowship with God. In fact, at the very beginning of the letter, John writes, that which we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and, and with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God is for those who know Him. Secondly, he writes with warnings about false prophets. John is the one who uses the term 
Antichrist most. And he warns of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. He, he warns that many false prophets have gone out into the world. But he also focuses significantly in 1 John on the theme of assurance. How you and I can know that we know that we truly know that we have eternal life. He writes, for example, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. The word know is one of the key words that is seen throughout the Gospel of John. And he focuses on this idea of assurance. For example, in chapter 3, verse 19, John writes, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and shall reassure our hearts before him. God wants us to have assurance in our relationship with Him. He writes in chapter 4, By this we know that we abide in Him, in He and us, because He's given us of His Spirit. He wants us to have assurance. By this we know. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. And then I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me ask you today, do you know with a certainty, do you know that if you died, you'd go to heaven? you have that assurance? I find that many people have a hope that they'll go to heaven, a hope that they'll have eternal life. But John's telling us we can know. In fact, the little book of 1 John is filled with restatements of the fact that we can know this reality this truth. And we're going to talk about that assurance today. John gives, I believe, three tests by which we may evaluate our faith in order that we might be assured that our faith is genuine and that we really have eternal life. Commentator Roger Crooks points out three, these three tests. And the first, I think we could call the truth test, the truth test. And John stresses the great importance of believing and knowing that Jesus Christ really came in the flesh. It's interesting the way he starts the letter of 1 John. He writes, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have touched, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Why does he focus on the fact that we've actually been able to touch Jesus? We've actually felt that he was real flesh and blood. Well, he stresses this more. In 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3, note, note the warning he gives here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh. In the little letter of 2 John, verse 7, he, he writes again, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver 
and the Antichrist. Now, John uses this word Antichrist. There's so, always been much speculation about who the Antichrist is. And, and John seems to be referring, when he uses the word Antichrist, or the spirit of Antichrist, to referring to someone who would distort or alter the truth about the true nature of Jesus. And John is stressing the importance that Jesus came as a real flesh and blood human being. In the Gospel of John, the, the, the work for which John is best known, he begins, ending, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then he goes on to write, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John stresses this reality. Why is it so important to believe that Jesus was a real flesh and blood human being? Commentators suggest that John is writing against a backdrop in his day of a false teaching that has become known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. We'd spell it in English, G-N-O-S-I-S. And it simply means knowledge. But according to early Gnostic beliefs, Salvation was an escape from this evil flesh and was attained through a special knowledge, gnosis, and not by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Gnostics believed that the material world was altogether evil. The flesh was totally evil, but not the spirit. The spirit was good. So some would take this to mean if the flesh is of no consequence whatsoever, well, you can do whatever you want in your flesh. You can do all the immoral things you want to do in your flesh. The flesh is of no consequence whatsoever. In fact, Jesus Christ wasn't really flesh and blood. He couldn't have been because flesh is bad. He was a spirit being. And so against this, John is saying some very strong things that many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John stresses this part of the truth test, but there's another part of it that he stresses. And that is the reality that Jesus was not only a flesh and blood human being conceived in Mary's womb, he was also truly the Son of God. That which we've seen and heard, he writes, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with who? His Son, Jesus Christ. John writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. As he wrote in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Fully human flesh, yes, but also fully God, deity. One of our favorite Advent passages is Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to bear a son. She's going to see, conceive in a womb and bear a child. And we read these words in Luke chapter 1 and verse thirty. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He'll be a real flesh and blood human being. He'll be conceived in the womb of Mary. The angel goes on to say, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That is the Son of God. Fully human, conceived in the womb. Fully God, the Son of God, deity, God the Son. Why does this matter so much? Why does it matter so much that we understand Jesus was both truly flesh and blood and truly fully God? He always has been God. He took flesh upon himself in the incarnation when he was uh, placed into the womb of Mary. Why does it matter that we believe both? Because if Jesus were not really flesh and blood human, he could not have taken our place on the cross and atoned for our sin. The writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children, that is you and me, share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That is, Jesus had to be flesh and blood to take our place on the cross. He had to be really human to take our place, but he had to be really God so that his sacrifice was a sinless, perfect, flawless sacrifice of infinite value and able to atone for the sins of all people who had put their faith in him for all time to provide us his own eternal life that we might share his glory. And this leads to the third truth test that John provides. He's not only the one who came in the flesh and the Son of God, because of these two things, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now here John uses a word, he uses it twice. It's a word we never use. The word propitiation, think of it as, as payment for our sins, the necessary payment, uh, the atonement for our sins. When he said, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And again in chapter 4, he writes in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the truth test, knowing that Jesus really came in the flesh, knowing that he's really the Son of God, and because of those two things, he could become, he could be the propitiation, the atonement, the payment for our sins. So John is telling us to have assurance. We have the truth test by which we may examine the genuineness, the solidity, the reality of our faith. But he goes further. He gives us in 1 John what we might call the obedience test. And he gives this to us in what I think are perhaps the most challenging words in the book of 1 John. He writes, by this we know that we've come to know him. And again, throughout this letter, you find John using the word know. And perhaps he's using it so frequently because he's writing against this backdrop of Gnosticism where people felt that only those with certain special knowledge could be saved. 
Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, John's talking about real knowledge. He's talking about the fact that we've come to know him through these things. And he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we're in him. We can have assurance. We can know it. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is, a real believer demonstrates a growing likeness to Jesus, Christ's likeness. But John's words get even stronger on this point. And we read this in 1 John 3, verses 5 to 9. Notice in this section, by the way, the, the reoccurrence of the words makes a practice of sinning or keeps on sinning. John writes, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, in this little passage, you see two times he notes makes a practice of sinning. Three times he writes, keeps on sinning. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad John didn't write, whoever commits a sin. Because I know that I do, I know we all do, and even the Apostle James writes, we all stumble in many ways. John is writing about the person who takes the title Christian, but lives like the devil. John knew that Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Now, when we read these words, and they are convicting words. Um, Whoever makes a practice of sinning has neither, neither seen him or known him. Those are, those are strong words. And I want to first caution Christians, especially those who are young believers and new in the faith, not to equate a failure, a stumbling into sin with a loss of your salvation. Some Christians grow rapidly. Some Christians grow through overcoming sin more rapidly. Some grow slowly and through many struggles. There are some who wrestle with addictions, some with mental health issues, and struggle even more. Over the years, I've talked to a number of um, inmates for Scythe Detention Center downtown or the prison over off of Cherry Street, and sometimes talk to those who, who, who really, really seem to have a genuine humility before God, a brokenness before God, a desire to walk with Him. They've, they've placed their trust in Him. But for them, 
life, life's a struggle. They find themselves falling back a lot. Their struggles with addiction, sometimes issues of mental illness are there. And when I, I think of that, I think of the fact that the Apostle Paul talked about the fact that some believers are, in his words, weak. And Paul writes in Romans 15, 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. I think of the words about Jesus in Matthew 12 and verse 24. When I see those who seem to genuinely be trusting him, repenting of sins, but struggling, I think of the fact that it's said of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And so I make a distinction between the weaker believer who is struggling more than others but continues to turn to God in genuine, trusting, humility, contriteness, faith, repentance. I make a distinction between that person and the person who claims to be a Christian, but continues in willful, deliberate sin with no remorse and no repentance. And there are an awful lot of people like that in our world today who just want to take the title Christian. And I think... That's the person who claims faith. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but totally disregards what God says about sexual immorality, greed, hatred, judgmentalism. To this person, Jesus' words given through John, written through John here, should bring godly fear leading to a humble repentance and genuine devotion to Jesus. John is saying, you can't say, I'm a Christian and live like the devil, as some were teaching in his time, as if what you do in the flesh is of no consequence. John is saying, yes, it is. And a true believer does not deliberately, willfully continue down that path but seeks to grow in likeness to Christ. There's the truth test. There's the obedience test as we examine our assurance. And then thirdly, there is the love test. John continues to write about what we know, and he writes about our assurance. When he writes, we know that we've passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. Isn't that a beautiful way to examine your assurance? Yeah, God's made a difference. Because he's put a love in me for his people. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now look at that verse for a moment. Verse 8. God is love is one of the best known phrases in all the Bible and understandably so. What a beautiful truth. We quote it often, but we may be forgetting the first part of verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
impossible to have God in your life and not have his love in your life. It gets even stronger in 1 John 4, 19 to 21, when John writes these words. We, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Wow. Wow. Those are strong words. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John, throughout his writing, stresses very strongly what he stressed in the Gospel of John when he records Jesus having said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. John stresses it throughout. James, the Apostle James, calls this the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, I think Paul calls it the law of Christ. Our love for one another is an evidence that we are really his. So, how do we evaluate the genuineness of our faith? How do we examine ourselves for our assurance? I think John gives us three tests, the truth test. That Jesus has really come in the flesh, real humanity, and he's really the Son of God, really deity. Because of these, he provides a real salvation. He made propitiation, payment for our sins, the truth test. Number two, the obedience test. John says it in strong words. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And then the love test. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, we love one another. And so John, he, he comes to a, a close in this beautiful little letter, 1 John. Just what a great, great little book of the Bible to study. He writes about assurance in 1 John 5, 13. And these things I write to you, other, other words, here's why I'm writing this letter to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know that you know. Roger Crooks writes about um, a disaster at sea in 1858, a ship, the Austria, was a steam-powered ship, and it was headed to the United States when it caught fire. It's a terrible disaster. 400 people uh, were killed when the ship uh, caught fire and sank, but there were survivors. And one survivor writes about something that was witnessed in the midst of this. There were five Christian friends traveling on this ship, and they somehow got trapped between the fire and the end of the boat, the fire in the ocean. And they knew they were all about to die. And they, they prayed together. They got together and they prayed. And they, they all decided they were going to, they'd rather die by water. They were going to jump in the water. Before, before they did, 
they expressed assurance that they would all meet again in heaven in a few minutes. They'd all meet again just a few minutes. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to die. We're going to go through this. But we'll see you in a few minutes on the other side. You know, the Apostle Paul had this kind of assurance. What he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you have that kind of assurance? John's saying, I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. So, you may know that you have eternal life. If you do not know that today, it's important to truly believe in who Jesus is. He came as a flesh and blood Savior, God the Son, Son of God, to die on the cross to make propitiation for our sins. And as we embrace His salvation, He becomes our Lord. And we follow Him. I'd like to invite any who've never done that or don't know whether they've ever done that to join me in a prayer to do that today. So would you join me as we pray now? Father, Apart from the salvation of Jesus, none of us could ever call you our Father who art in heaven. But because we have an advocate, we have a Savior, we have an intercessor, the one who gave his life for us, because of that, because of that, we can call you our Father. I pray for any watching our service today or present here with us, who've never truly embraced the salvation of Jesus, if today you're truly willing to turn from your sin and turn to Him and truly trust Him as your Savior and Lord, I invite you to join me in a simple prayer. You can follow me using these words. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead to be my savior. Jesus, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I turn to you as my savior and my Lord. I trust you now and receive you as the Lord of my life. Empower me to follow you the rest of my days. Thank you for giving your life for me. Amen. Now before our worship uh, team comes with a really special song, um, two things I want to mention. Number one, a uh, number of you have been following us throughout the years. We've gone through the book of Psalms with a little daily three-minute, 180-second podcast called Psalm Starter. We started in January at Psalm 1, and if you've been with us, you know that Friday we hit Psalm 150. I want to let you know that we're not finished yet. It continues tomorrow uh, with kind of an Advent focus, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Psalms. So for the next three weeks, Monday to Friday, on the little Psalm Starter podcast, we're going to be looking at 
passages in the Psalms that reveal Jesus kind of help tie together our one story emphasis. And then, of course, uh, they'll stay up there next year if you'd like to begin with us at the beginning of the year in the Psalms. Lastly, I do want to uh, ask you to keep um, Pastor Wes's wife, Brene, in prayer. Uh, after the service last week, we learned that she had a, a uh, serious car accident uh, with a broken vertebrae, broken sternum. She's recovering, been in a lot of pain. Please uh, pray for her. And now, let's worship the Lord together.